Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. There's a neighborhood in Toronto that has a lot going on. It has a lush, meandering ravine down the east border and a pioneer village in the north end. There are homes and apartment buildings, schools, a hospital, parks full of kids on bikes, teenagers playing sports. In the middle of the neighborhood are these clusters of strip malls stuffed with everything. In one row, you will find a Vietnamese restaurant between a halal food market and a Caribbean-Italian fusion joint that also serves roti. Because why not? Wherever you live in Canada... I bet you've heard of this neighborhood. Its reputation precedes it. A reputation that sometimes, often, eclipses everything else I've just told you about it. Jane and Finch. That's where Paul Nguyen grew up. You start to realize, damn, my neighborhood's kind of different from other people. And when you venture out to like Markham or Richmond Hill, we're like, oh, I see the difference. To understand what Paul means by different... It's important to understand the harsher parts of Jane and Finch's reality, where that reputation comes from. Statistically, in comparison to other parts of the city of Toronto, violent crime in the area is high. Between 2001 and 2018, there were more shootings in Jane and Finch than any of the city's other 17 police divisions. Earlier this month, a 12-year-old boy out walking with his mother was caught in gunfire and killed. But while not everybody agrees, some locals say things are better than they were 15 or 20 years ago. And if that's true, then Paul Nguyen is a big part of why. Paul has dedicated his life to this neighborhood, to lifting it up, scars and all. But 15 years ago, Paul's efforts were nearly destroyed, just as they were beginning to make an impact. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Paul has kept silent about the story you're about to hear for a long time. He came to us with what happened, but that doesn't mean it's easy for him to talk about. Entering this uh, interview with you, I was really nervous. Before I even turned on the phone, my heart was kind of beating because I didn't want to really drag drag up all this old stuff. I'm just trying as best I can recall what I, what I remember happened and my perceptions and my feelings of what happened. This story happens in two places simultaneously, on the streets and in the homes of Jane and Finch, and online. We all know the story of the black guy walking or driving and getting pulled over. Now you have a black guy walking in cyberspace getting pulled over. Like, what gives, right? It's ridiculous. Quick heads up, there is some language in this episode. Doc Project producer Julia Poggle will take it from here. We're going to start back in the early 90s, when Paul was just a kid. 
exploring the streets, alleyways, and ravines of his neighborhood. And growing up as a kid in Jane Finch with my friends, we used to make a lot of like kung fu movies and action movies in the neighborhood. We'd climb on the rooftops, you know, public housing areas, just everywhere. And climbing those rooftops right beside Paul was his best friend, Mark Sims. I was actually born in Jane and Finch. Mark and Paul had been friends since they were young kids. And at first, the reason for hanging out was pretty simple. Well, he had a lot of toys. <laughs> but uh, I think our, like, our real passion, uh, our real friendship grew when we discovered uh, video. Mark would say the camcorder was like our kind of our uh, role model and kept us out of trouble. <laughs> So we actually explored a lot and learned a lot about Janet Finch and making scenes and figuring it out and getting neighborhood kids to work together on a project. Even one time my friend is hanging off a car, we're doing a scene in Jane Finch Mall, like some carjacking, and then the cops thought it was the real thing. They came there, like the, the lights were on, and I was like, oh, oh, we're showing the video camera, like we're just making a movie. Now my friend's driving, the other guy's hanging on top of the roof. But of course we're just like, you know, teenagers with no permits or anything. So we made it on VHS and we passed it around like mixtapes of today and people would watch us and actually we're kind of famous in the neighborhood and uh, we'd even screen it at schools during like, you know, break time and then, and then I remember once I went to Blockbuster, they, we had a local Blockbuster and the guy put the tape in and it was on all the screens in Blockbuster and I felt like, wow, I felt like Hollywood. <laughs> and all that practice making videos paid off. In grade 12, Paul made a video for this cross-country contest. The theme of the contest was Stop Racism Now. So my video is basically like three kids. I think it was my, my kid brother was in it. He was one of the stars. If you're happy and you know uh, so some Asian kids and a black kid. And they're just standing there like this, holding their hands up. And each person, there's three kids, so each person has a, a letter written on their hand that says racism. Someone's in the background is singing, oh, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. But obviously they have racism, so they can't clap. And then there's a bucket of water. They wash their hands. So they wash up effectively. It's like a metaphor, washing off racism. And then they start clapping. So. And he was one of the winners. He got his movie played at this big festival at Much Music in Toronto. And he realized, making movies? It could be something bigger than just a fun way to hang out with his friends. So, uh, yeah, making videos, we just... You know, we thought, wow, we can maybe do something different with our lives because we've seen a lot of other young kids fall by the wayside. I can say this, like a lot of my friends at the time, they were in gangs. A lot of my friends were in jail. A few of them had died at the time already, even at that age, even at like 14, 15. You know, my focus wasn't trying to rob a car or at that time steal a car stereo, which was the big thing at that time. I remember like after school, or like during the summer, all we, all we really wanted to do was make a movie better than the last one. So the guys graduate from high school and Paul goes off to York University for film in Toronto. Mark starts teaching martial arts and fitness and they keep making movies. And then, in 2004, near the end of Paul's time at York, he decided to start a website. It's the early 2000s, remember, so this wasn't something everybody was doing. Paul wanted to call it janefinch.com. But unfortunately, uh, Jane Finch was taken, janefinch.com, because there's a lady by the name of Jane and Finch, who was a real real estate agent in London, Ontario. So, so I had to buy a domain jane-finch.com. 
it was like one one page really and it's just like about Jane Finch uh, some basic stats and mostly it was a way to kind of promote our videos those action movies but also highlight the neighborhood just like those VHS tapes that got passed around their community everyone wanted to check out the website people loved seeing their world on screen something that rarely happened unless it was attached to a negative news headline and then uh, we started dabbling in uh, rap videos and trying to like explore make some rap songs and then uh yeah we started noticing people are like watching it like crazy they're visiting the site like crazy there's no advertising it's purely word of mouth and more and more people wanted to make rap videos with them local people who'd been rapping for crowds and friends for years they now had a platform people like atiba ralph aka blackest ninja well the first time i ever rapped in jana finch in front of a crowd was in uh like the first day of grade nine and um, some rappers from uh, Detroit came, and they were like, uh, they, they came to the school, and they, they were in the auditorium, so everybody in the school got to see them do their thing. But they were like Christian rappers, and they were rapping about, you know, your schoolwork and stuff. And they, they looked good, and they sounded all right. And then after the show, they said, does anybody want to grab the mic and rep for your school? And I ran up on the stage. And I grabbed the mic and I said a little ABC rhyme. It was very soft and simple. Yo, my name is Atiba. Rhymes with the Reba. Went to Aruba. I don't play the tuba. And, and something stupid like that. And the crowd was going crazy. And I felt so hyped. I was the man for the whole day. And Blackest kept going, rapping at reggae shows and parties. But now that jane-finch.com was around... It was like a, it was like a window of opportunity for everybody getting their, their music heard internationally for free. You know what I'm saying? It's not like they were going around charging people to do videos. They were doing these things for free for the people in the community. So it was like they, were just, they became the man. Like Everybody was always watching their thing. Everybody wanted to be down with it. So it was a really unifying, unifying um, time. So Paul and Mark started making more videos for local youth, having a lot of fun. But there was one rap video in particular that really blew up. We made a rap video with a Vietnamese guy, and the video went viral. So imagine going viral, there's no YouTube. It's like a little two megabyte file being emailed around the world, literally. The video featured a guy named Chucky Atkins called You Got Beef. Basically a story of a young Vietnamese kid getting beaten up and he calls Chucky, who also is Vietnamese, and what appears to be his gang to come and settle the beef. Paul said he was getting emails from around the world telling him how much they loved this video. Paul's Vietnamese too. And I guess for the first time, people saw like a cool Vietnamese guy who was kind of saying like, fuck you, I can do this too, type of thing. That kind of attitude, that swag. Because you had the typical image of the Asian in Hollywood as like a meek nerd or a kung fu master. So we actually have like a guy who's like kind of cool and he's into like rap and hip hop culture. And I think a lot of kids really like that. And after that, all the young local rappers at Jane and Finch wanted to make a video. Paul was flooded with requests. Blockus remembers the hype. When they did that video with Chucky Atkins, and then after they did a video for another guy, and then they did my video, and then they did another video for another guy, 
every single person would go on the video website. It was like crazy. It was crazy. Videos shot in the street and community housing around Jane and Finch. People dancing and partying to music. Spliced with images of kids running around the neighborhood. There were videos about smoking weed. People having confrontations with cops and guns. And then there were people talking about the hardships of living at Jane and Finch. Regret and hopelessness. Video after video. And for Paul and Mark, dreams were growing. Tonight, we look at the power of the internet to reach into one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. And the media was taking notice, too. On a neighborhood in Toronto called the Jane Finch Corridor. It's home to a lot of underprivileged people, but home now to some who are harnessing the power of the web to try to change lives. Seemed like everyone wanted a good news story from Jane and Finch raising the profile of the community as a complex and worthwhile place. Sounds like Canada. I'm going to take you where I went earlier this week, right to the heart of Jane Finch. In 2005, CBC's Sounds Like Canada, with host Sheila Rogers, did an episode from Jane and Finch. My first stop, the home of Paul Nguyen, founder and director of the website jane-finch.com. And she met up with Paul, Mark, and Blackus. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we just do videos all day long and there's a lot of other things that we do as well. Sometimes uh, we'd get invited by like, you know, local schools, high schools, universities, and we'd drop in, do like a little guest lecture or whatever. We try to help out the community. What, what do you lecture about when you do a guest lecture? It could be a various things because uh, I guess a lot of people, they look up to us and the rappers as uh, role models. Okay, like Blackest Ninja. Yeah, right Blackest, tell us what's going on. Well, that video there, the song is called NWO, New World Order, and it's just talking about um, the situation, the system, and my perspective. It may not be um, everybody's perspective, but it's, I'm just showing you how I see the world and what's going on in the changes. And what's your perspective? My perspective, it's, um, it's going on very violent right now, and violence seems to be the only thing that's being promoted and... And what we're doing right now, especially in this video, it may seem, it may look violent, but when you hear the lyrics, it's totally opposite. So what we're trying to catch viewers' eyes and stuff. One of my biggest dreams is to have a open a recording studio or production center in the heart of Jane Finch, maybe in having it situated in a community center where these kids can come and work and learn. You know, not everyone's going to make it as a rapper and not everyone can rap, but they can learn a lot of skills like audio engineering or sound design. And I think that would change. One little studio can change like the whole community. 
I'm, I want to ask you to just do a little freestyle for us, if you wouldn't mind. Something, something for you guys. No okay, Black. Live on CBC, how we do it, JaneFinch.com, big business, more movements. Yo, check it. Look how this place turned around in the 60s, the front of the bus. Looking back on that time, Blackus remembers it like this. It was a hope. It was a beam of hope for, for musicians and artists and, and uh, you know, activists and to be heard without without their image being tainted or whatever message they want they're trying to give out it wasn't being influenced by nothing else but themselves right what do you know about Scarborough what do you know about the Joe let me tell you what I got let me tell you where I'm from Jane Finch don't act dumb everybody wants some don't start the beef love the peace everybody love my streets don't even want to speak you can get it oh I'm just playing with you I'm playing <laughs> <laughs> So they kept making their videos and doing interviews about the site. And with all the media, people started reaching out to support them, sending them money and words of encouragement. Paul got letters from local politicians, MPs, people of influence, thanking him for his work and supporting him. And when he got a letter of support, he posted on his site. It was all feeling pretty good. And we're enjoying the popularity. Like, my friends were saying, the guy in the video is like, you know, girls follow us around. I'm like, bullshit. So we went to Pacific Mall, and sure enough, there's girls following us around the corner. I'm like, wow, I could get used to this. But then once we got the news and there were some elders in the community, I, I don't recall who it was, but I just remember getting feedback from people on the street just saying, you know what, now you have a platform, you have a voice, and you should use it to do some good and maybe learn about the issues here and maybe use your website to kind of teach people, you know, about how we're living here or what the challenges we face. So it kind of, I was challenged by the community uh, to use my newfound voice to do something good. And uh, that's what I did, I took on that challenge. With the help of a Humber College journalism grad and Mark, they started doing news stories about the community too. Positive news. Even though the rap videos would get the most views, like a million views or something, but uh, a tree planting video might get 500 views. But I still think those 500 people who saw it, it's very important for them to know that these kind of activities take place in Jane and Finch. I didn't know actually that I had critics out there until, because I was just posting stuff going about my business. And then something strange started to happen. Here's Mark. I think it was just like, it was like a slow drip at first, you know? First, Paul tells me, oh, something weird happened. They took this down. So we get, I got like, I had a lot of uh, letter of endorsements from like local politicians, MP, counselors, whatever. And then I started getting uh, emails and contacted by them. Can you remove my letter? I'm not comfortable with the site, what it's promoting. And I was like, what are we, what are you talking about? And then the next month, oh, something weird happened. This person called me and said they didn't want that on there. You know what I mean? So it was like a few months of weird things just constantly happening. The emails kept coming. Please take my name off your site. I don't want to be affiliated with you anymore. And the calls were getting really personal, too. Paul and Mark were working with CBC's Fifth Estate at the time, helping produce a visual doc about life at Jane and Finch. One day, a call came into a producer at Fifth Estate. 
The person on the other end of the call was questioning why the Fifth Estate was working with Paul and Mark. So this time we're just kind of putting the puzzle pieces together. But it all clicked when Paul got a request to remove a letter of endorsement from a federal MP. And CC'd on that email was a guy named Brent Bolesky. Paul did some searching using Brent's name and Jane Dash Finch. And eventually that led him to a website called nogangs.org. There he found a bunch of interviews with Brent and also local politicians and law enforcement about his website. And this time, this wasn't a good news story. I'm Bob Pritchard, and we're looking at the uh, website jane-finch.com. And when you first go there, and it, it looks like a, an absolutely outstanding portal for the area, a portal being a, a collection of different... And they did a series of these interviews on AM640 over the course of the year. And these are long. These are not like five-minute segments. These are like 60-minute episodes, okay? So just to let, give that people know what how in-depth it was. But then as we look in it more detail we start to see that they have brought other factors or other types of uh, material into it, which is, which is questionable. Uh, in, the, uh, in the video area, they have a number of, of videos which Toronto Police Service is saying are very much non-constructive video and do not enhance the community. But is it the right for the police to go in and look at this sort of thing? And I was like, I was clueless. I had no clue. Uh, is that the role of policing? Is that the future role of policing? And we're going to dig into that question because we've got uh, Constable Scott Mill standing by 14 Division. He's the guy. And by the way, you want to talk about one person making a difference. I've been trying to talk to anybody who will listen um, about the negative messages that these videos uh, send out. Though Paul says he never got a call from Scott Mills at the time to talk about his site, Scott was the one who posted some of these interviews to the nogangs.org website. Paul would later find out that Scott also bought the domain to janefinch.com, the domain that Paul wanted but that real estate agent in London, Ontario had. Scott eventually got it and he redirected janefinch.com to the nogangs.org website. As Paul scrolled through these interviews, he heard panel discussions, one-on-one interviews, all circling around Jane Finch's rap videos, claiming they had a dangerous influence on kids. And Paul and Mark needed to be stopped. Like in, in these videos, we've got you know eight-year-old young boys that are getting in a minor problem on a playground, and they're calling the gang who come and stab and shoot the other kid that the, the younger kid's having a problem with. And that's exactly the message that we don't need to portray in our community. And I was shocked because first of all, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And secondly, it's like, nobody called me. Usually if you have beef with someone, you can just call them up. Especially my cell phone number is on the damn website. <laughs> Paul found most of these recordings after they had already gone to air. So he couldn't call in and try to give his side of things. And he says AM640 never contacted him for his thoughts on what they were calling a very negative side of his website. Brutally Honest, The Stafford Show on AM640 Toronto Radio. Here's another one of those interviews on AM640. The uh, shooting at CW Jeffrey is taking the life of Jordan Manners. This time on the Mike Stafford Show. Joining us on the line is uh, Brent Bolesky. He's a consultant with worldgang.com. And uh, Brent, first of all, thanks for talking to us. Oh, thank you for 
bringing this forward to the public here. Well, right. I know what's going on. Now, you had uh, an email uh, that you sent to me. Yeah. Uh, it says here, have lots of info and guests on www.janefinch.com. Uh, a hate violent cop killing video shot at CW Jeffries and promoted at janefinch.com. This interview happened shortly after a tragic event at CW Jeffries, which was Paul and Mark's high school. A boy named Jordan Manners had been shot and killed at the school. He was in grade nine. Two teens were accused of his murder. Uh, they try to promote this website, Brent, as a uh, as a as a communal uh, bulletin board, as a as a way for the the dispossessed, the disenfranchised, and the Jane Finch community yeah. to express their thoughts, their art, their rap, etc. What do you see it as? Uh, it's called baiting and switching. They've been promoting uh, this hate and racism on their sites since their existence, and I've been after them for about two years now. Paul has no memory of ever being contacted by Brent Bolesky. And as he said before, if he wanted to get in touch, Paul's cell was on his website. The video in question, if you go to their site, jane-finch.com, the video is... There was one segment uh, commenting on a video that I did in grade 11. The video is under, it's under videos and you click film, it's called School of the Dead. It's a slasher movie, okay? My best friend Mark was a cop in the movie, and we just we have the wardrobe from the drama department, so he wore an old, outdated police shirt. And in the movie, it's just a slasher going around killing students in the high school. And then Mark's the cop, and he tried to intervene, but obviously the killer got the better of him and stabbed him. And we had those fake retractable knives that you get at the dollar store for Halloween, so it just goes, the blade goes in. This is grade 11. The grade 11 drama class project. By the way, the teachers gave him an A on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a killing of both three students and a police, Toronto police officer. But if you actually take the time and look at the video, it's like, this is an immature high school project. These guys have no political message behind it. They're just trying to get an A mark. Well, the irony is there because they're promoting it as a school of death is the name of the video. So dumb. We have nothing better to do. Paul, Mark, and Blockus were hanging out in Paul's bedroom one day. And Paul decided to play them this interview. As they listened, someone turned on a video camera. Paul is angrily pacing. Mark is sitting at a computer, scrolling through something on the screen. And Blackus is slouched in a chair, face blankly listening. You see, this episode had a very special sting to it. Jordan Manners, the 15-year-old who was killed, was Blackus's cousin. And now here was Brent Bolesky basically blaming these guys for contributing to an environment which allowed for this death with their grade 11 class project. Violence and Ray, 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 like they're trying to use this little innocent youth's death for like for the status quo or something. They're promoting it for the last eight years and, and the schools... Uh, haven't, haven't shut down or have made any approach to shut down the site. Mm-hmm. So they've been advertising it as a school of death so and gang activity, etc. So why wouldn't it be so after eight years of promotion? It was just terrible to kind of tie that in. It's just so uncalled for. And we just felt a great injustice having an outsider and, you know, just claiming this and claiming that and just having his facts all wrong and misleading people and actually doing harm to us. Casey here. Coming up, a rap battle. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, 
Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So this isn't really a new story, right? The fear that movies, comic books, and music can be a negative influence on youth, that story goes back decades, if not way farther. And in the early 2000s, the war on rap was raging. The guns, the language, the representation of women in a lot of gangster rap had some segments of society on edge. Studies came out. Some claiming listening to gangster rap resulted in violent behavior. And then the other studies came out saying that that just wasn't true. And rap had a right to exist no matter what it was saying. But that debate itself, happening in think pieces and PhD theses, between freaked out suburban PTAs and music producers, took a real toll on the rappers and the video makers. The people everyone was fighting over. People like Paul and Mark. What we're talking about is how this debate looks in reality. When it's not a major label company that's being forced to put warnings on their music, but some young guys trying to make a name for themselves and show people what life is like where they live. Now think about it. I'm just a dude from Jane Finch. My parents are Vietnamese boat people. They, they came over in 1979, you know, after the war to escape communism, to seek a better, a new life, a better life. And a lot of that's why we have a lot of like newcomers and immigrants in uh, Jane Finch because of the low income, affordable housing, a place to get started, to start your lives. So I have no connections. I have nothing. I'm building from the, the from the start, from the scratch. Right. I'm the guy with the machete going into the jungle and I'm cutting the way because there's no path there. Right. So we got to figure this shit out ourselves. So I really felt like, yeah, I'm at mercy. The interviews on AM640 continued. And some aren't so clear-cut, like this one on the Craig Brumell Show with his co-host, John Downs. 640 Toronto Radio, John Downs with Craig Brumell. And Craig, just before the break, we were talking about um, jane-finch.com. The ex-chief of the police was a guest on the show that day. Chief Bill McCormick, chief, are you there? I am, sir. How are you? Not bad. How are you? Good, very good. Listen, we wanted to talk to you about... Uh, jane-finch.com there's quite a list including us of names different organizations and personal names of people that just don't want to be associated with this website anymore and your name yes including yours (laughs) um they really sell this as something else other than what people believe it is quite so what is the issue well the issue is uh, personally i I feel that the whole thing is totally improper. There's no question in my mind. They go on to talk about how they want their names off the site and how wrong it is to have people on there if they don't want to be. The way all of this is portrayed as deception really upset Paul. He said whenever he got an email requesting a letter be removed, he did it right away. And also, it appeared some of the people weren't coming to this conclusion about getting their name off the site on their own. A number of people interviewed about the site said it wasn't until AM640 called them that they thought about rethinking their support. One person I spoke with, 
says she remembers a very intense call from someone telling her there is going to be a big panel discussion coming up on AM640, and her organization wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of this, so she should request Paul take down her letter of endorsement. So she did. And I don't want to be on there, so take it off. Quite so. After a lot of talk about why people don't want to be associated with the website, co-host John Down steps in. There's a lot to pour through on this one, but with all due respect, I've got to ask you both. I'm looking at this website. I'm seeing uh, links to pictures of the uh, Driftwood Multicultural Festival uh, and links to uh, local hip-hop artists, and they've got some videos. I don't seem to see or understand what the problem is here, Uh, unless it's, it's, you know... A bunch of white guys scared about being on a, on a hip-hop-related website. Uh, not at all. Not at all. I don't think that that's the case at all. I think the, the, the point, in, in fact, is, as you just mentioned earlier on, that there is no permission. There Back is to the no concern about names right. being on the site. Uh, and then host Craig Brumell chimes in. No doubt about it. The other issue is here, is it, and, and people have been trying to explain this to me also, are there hidden messages here on this website that it's cool to be a member of a gang? Absolutely. And that's no what's concerning. Okay, wait, 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 where? Where are we seeing these messages? Because I'm on the website and I want to know where I, we are seeing messages or some kind of encouragement that, be, aside from people having links to their hip-hop videos, they're, they're making kind of homegrown hip-hop videos in their communities, unless you think that is a negative thing. What's in the video, though? No, I don't think that's a negative thing, so long as it's done lawfully. Now, the other thing is it depends on what influence you bring to bear. If you bring to bear any kind of an influence that it is okay to be a member of a gang or become involved in uh, violence in any way, shape, or form, then I believe that that is quite wrong. No, you are saying that these videos, depending, I haven't actually seen them yet, but if they're like much hip-hop out there, they probably mention someone getting a cap in the ass or whatever the case may be. They probably are based on their experiences living in these areas. Just there, John Downs got at something that's at the crux of all of this for the guys behind the website. They're just making art from their lives. Stories of people grappling with the world around them and telling those stories through rap. Where Chief Bill McCormick and Craig Bermel, Brent Bolesky and Constable Scott Mills all looked at these videos and saw a bad influence creating a violent world. Paul and Mark, they saw it as an outlet to reflect their world as it was, when there were few other outlets around. It's something that Blackest Ninja reflected on when talking to Sheila Rogers in 2005, when she asked him about the guns she saw in the rap videos. And obviously the youths them that are singing, saying the language or doing the art form are in a position where they're expressing what they're living and what they're going through. And it may sound harsh from somebody who has money or has the... Um, has an opportunity, but it's reality for these youths here, you know? So, and they're making money for talking the truth. Change the system and change the way things are. Maybe we could not rap about guns and drugs and stuff like that. And Blackus is still thinking about that today. Being a black man, a young black man, living in a community that, whether whether it's true or not, feels, economically, it feels different than other places you've been to and then you realize that oh this is just how we live down here 
and then you realize how the uh, the authorities treat you, and uh, and some people have positions of authority that treat you that are aren't from the community. Then you begin to to have a lot of um, tension and stress within yourself, and there's a and there's hardly any kind of way for you to express that tension and stress because of the financial position that you're in. So you know you may not be able to go to the cottage once a week, or you may not be able to have your own room and have your own peace of quiet because you have three other brothers, or, or you may not have your own. You know what I'm saying? Because you always got to share or whatever. And Paul thought it was important that people heard about these difficult lives with no filter. It wasn't my message, and it was certainly not my experience. But what these guys were saying, whether it's uh, fictional or nonfiction, basically, I always have a policy of I will work and talk with anybody, or at least try to find out what they're about. And it uh, doesn't matter what your background is, uh, where you come from. So I can talk to the guy on the street, the drug dealer, or the gangbanger, or the guy who had a thug life, and I can still interface with the police officer or talk to the mayor or the police chief. All of this criticism and the way it was just handed to them, when it landed, it did something more than just sending these guys a gut punch. Just feel like... Um, you're, we're always under suspicion. So even I'm driving around, if there's a police uh, car behind me, I feel scared, even though I didn't do nothing wrong. Putting these guys under the lens of the police, it struck a nerve that sent shockwaves through their whole psyche, pinging and reactivating so much more than just a sense of anger about their work being criticized. It's traumatic as hell, to be honest, and I have a pretty thick skin. And also very scared, because I've seen what happened to my friends, you know, just... A simple thing like being pulled over or being suspected or you're just living your life as a kid in Jane Finch and always feeling like you have to prove yourself and that you're always lacking credibility and that you're always under suspicion. That is kind of what we grow up living, not only just walking around and you have eyes in the back of your heads because we have to be very aware. And growing up with that type of radar makes you very exhausted. So this was actually my first run in with like uh, someone in an authority who actually either was a critic or didn't agree with what I was doing and was actually speaking out against me, I felt. So I was very scared. I never had any of that experience. Even though I'm a person of color, I'm not a black person. And black people will have a way more more difficult experience. That feeling of constant surveillance is something Mark knows very well. Being randomly stopped by police has happened to him a lot in his life. But this one time when he was 15 really sticks out. They came up to me, they handcuffed me, they put me in the car. They're saying that they have to see if it's me or not. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I'm handcuffed and I'm sitting in the back of the car. There's people across the street that are laughing at me, you know? And it's so funny like to think about that story and how hopeless I was because they say they're the cops and I just obey them, right? We're the cops and you just listen because you're a black kid. You know, you're not going to say nothing to know these two white guys. Right. And it's so funny how the same thing happens again with this whole Scott Mills. Mark's referring to Constable Scott Mills here from the AM640 interviews. How we were so hopeless and how he went around and told all these people that we were bad and everyone just listened. I remember when I was sitting in that car as a kid and how these people were laughing at me. These black people 
like my black people were laughing at me, thinking that I did something wrong. I had no idea what was going around. I, I just felt embarrassed at the time, right? And they were pointing and laughing too, right? And it's the same thing with the Scott Mills, how much power he has to go around, tell all these people these things. People won't check it up. They just know that he's a cop and that's all they need to know. And so they just cancel us. So on top of being scared, Paul and Mark were furious that their website was being dragged through the mud. They both said they felt like they had lost grant opportunities for the site because of what happened on AM640. And all this backlash, it did make them rethink how they were operating. It changed everything. I no longer would say I'm working on this project and, and posting it. And, and, and because you don't know who's out there who could potentially uh, either they're trying to sabotage your work or trying to block you. So that's what I felt like. And I was just really scared because I, I had all kinds of rumors that people, uh, they're saying that, oh, the police is, uh, they're monitoring their traffic going in and out of the website. So I felt like there's no credibility or no accountability behind, you know, it's like you can say something hurtful and then then you just uh, you just kind of forget about it and you leave that person with a trauma and the, that person who's speaking out on the big microphone just kind of goes on with their life, not understanding the kind of destructive path that they, they left. They wanted to do something. So Paul called a lawyer at Ontario Human Rights, asking if they had a case for slander or defamation. But Paul says the lawyer said it wasn't a slam dunk. So nothing happened. They kept going with janeandfinch.com, but some things weren't the same. You know, I had some other guys from the neighborhood, like other rappers, and they're like, hey, can we do a rap video? We want to do this and that. I'm like, you know what? I got to kind of chill out on the rap videos for now. Or if there's like too much F words or N words or whatever, like I got to relax it. And I wasn't able to operate as freely and just to be an artist, but I have to be careful of the political ramifications. And this is the first time where I realized the website is political. I was like, damn, <laughs> from going from rap videos and having girls follow you around at the mall to now we have people in power who have the potential and the capability to sabotage you or to harm you. Paul continued with his site, focusing more on those positive news stories. At one point, he did meet with Constable Scott Mills. Paul can't remember who initiated that get together. He said, basically, you can remove your rap videos and I'll leave you alone, in essence. And I felt like that's not a good deal uh, because uh, why should I stop expressing myself? So the videos stayed up. The interviews on AM640 eventually stopped, and Paul tried to move on. We'll try to just fight it by turning the other cheek and doing positive things. So we'll maybe we'll try to do rap videos here and there, but it significantly died down. If you see like 2005, we had like 20 rap videos and each year it's like progressively less and less and less. And then we started doing more community videos. I asked Paul, since they slowed down making their rap videos, did that mean that AM640, Scott and Brent won? Well, if you think about the rap videos, I wouldn't say he won. I would say uh, I was able to get a lot of recognition. He's been honored by the city for the work he's done to support his neighborhood. He's been given a Governor General's Award. And basically, I was able to really, through that experience, I, was, I helped a lot of young people get recognition for their work through the website. 
Paul and I discussed if he'd like to try and talk to anyone from AM640 or other people who were involved with the interviews 15 years ago. He said he'd rather not. He's still freaked out by all of this. Besides, he says the validity of his feelings, that's not up for debate. So I reached out on my own to see if anyone reflects differently on these events from 15 years ago. AM640 told me they did not want to comment on the story. And for that matter, no one from 15 years ago was still working at the station. Though Mike Stafford, the one who interviewed Brent Bolesky about the School of the Dead video, he still has a program on the network. I reached out to Brent Bolesky using a phone number and email on his website. But after multiple attempts, I didn't hear back. Thank you for calling the office of Brent Bolesky. Leave your name and number after the tone. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I did get in touch with Bob Pritchard, one of the former hosts at AM640. Well, I did get a call from Brent Polensky. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay. So and I... I'll tell you exactly what I told him. You're going to ask me about a story that happened 20 years ago. And I estimate that I've done over 50,000 interviews in my career. So good luck. He confirmed that Brent did a lot of the research for these segments. But Bob doesn't remember why Paul or Mark were never contacted to discuss their perspective of their website during this year of interviews. I think a very definite feeling that what we wanted to do was to talk about the good things that were going on. Now, in terms of how people rate what's a good thing, now you start to get into different opinions and you get some videos coming out that One person who was willing to go back those 15 years was now retired Constable Scott Mills. My my phone, and I've got my ringer down. We had a lot of emails and calls back and forth before Scott decided he wanted to talk to me and share his experience of jane-finch.com. But before we get there, I want you to hear a little bit more about Scott and how he came to be monitoring a site like jane-finch in the first place. He started his career a bit north of Toronto, in Peel region. It was uh, very busy and uh, did a lot of uh, investigations on my own into firearms and things like that. You know, I had some uh, near-death experiences, many police officers encounter. And uh, But then he came to work in the southwestern part of Toronto, 14 Division. Our, our mandate in that unit was uh, we worked in plain clothes and... Uh, we essentially investigated anything that was uh, uh, violent, especially youth-related, anything violent in a school, and uh, anything that had to do with gangs in the uh, in that area. And so that that was a pretty intense, uh, pretty a pretty intense time in my career. Uh, we, were, we were making a lot of arrests of very young kids with firearms. It was kind of sad, to be honest with you, like uh, dealing with mothers. Uh, that uh, had lost their children uh, due to gun violence. And one of the main things Scott dealt with was bullying. There's a lot of bullying. Scott says some of that bullying was coming from gang members. And some of the kids he was talking to, getting to know through being around the schools all the time, were scared. I remember having to have a a code to knock on a door uh, to go visit a victim because the young teenager was so scared to answer the door um, and he wanted to make sure it was us and not somebody tricking him basically. So Scott was making all these arrests but still there were these scared kids and he thought he should try something different. 
So I, I started trying to think about prevention, think about let's engage the kids. Like that, was, that became my thing. Scott saw a lot of kids were into BMX biking and graffiti, so he set up a program where they could do that together. And it was a hit. Kids were trusting him and talking to him. I got so many calls from kids from the BMX bike park and, and the graffiti community saying, you know, I'm hearing something bad's going to go down around my neighborhood tonight. Scott, you think you could just like get a police car to drive around here? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Just the sight of a police car changed the dynamic in the neighborhood that night, and somebody didn't die. And as he got closer with these kids, he was noticing this fear was entering a new space. The internet. Remember, this is the early 2000s, so the online world was pretty unknown. The online uh, stuff was out of control because... At the time, the kids uh, were more involved in the online world than the adults, and that included the teachers and the police officers. This focus on kids' online worlds became pretty central to his career, doing workshops with kids about how to keep safe online, that sort of thing. And it's that connection to the online world which made his ears perk up when he heard kids talking about jane-finch.com and the rap videos on the site. Um, kids were bringing the, these to our attention. Basically, they were saying that, you know, this kid right here that's in this video is coming down to the school tonight. And uh, we're scared, right? So we had these relationships. So kids that were in the videos were being identified to us by some of these kids that I said before that were scared to answer the door. He spoke out about the influence of the videos. And then he was approached by AM640 to discuss the website. And he stands behind that this site needed to be called out for the potential harm it was causing. These videos, they had real illegal firearms. Uh, and we're not talking like little pellet guns here. We're talking, you know, AK-47 type rifles and things like that. Paul says there were never any illegal guns in his videos. They did use prop guns at times, but they were fake. If he's saying there there are fake guns, um, you know anything's possible. But the the information that I had at the time uh, from people that were heavily involved in gun and gang work at the time in the law enforcement community was that those were appeared to be real guns. So. Was there any follow up on it? Right, like that's a pretty big accusation to believe that someone is. Uh, has illegal guns in their possession. Yeah. And he was just wondering why no one ever followed up with him if it was such a concern. Um, I wasn't involved in the investigative part, like, I, at all. Like, I was just on the front end of it. So I can't speak to what was done investigatively. From what Paul tells me, if there was an investigation, it never amounted to anything because he was never contacted by police over the 15 years since he started his site. But for Scott, it wasn't just about the guns. He says these videos were dangerous because of the messages they were sending. And it was uh, like a posturing thing these videos were. And it might might not have been Paul's intention to do that, um, but... But when if you're if you're gonna kind of use the creative license and you want to show what it's like in a community and you want to make a movie, um, you got to go get permits and things like that and do it the proper way to actually have it done. 
I shared some of what Paul and Mark had said with Scott and played him some clips from our interviews. These videos are just stories from the street, and they weren't really anything spectacular. But because this one individual, and because by virtue of his uh, position and authority and speaking out, really, really, I felt harmed us and harmed me in a way of like uh, economic opportunity, uh, networking opportunity. I never wanted to make it a race thing. I didn't think, okay, it's a white dude that maybe hates me because I'm Asian. I never thought of it that way. But now in 2020, seeing how a lot of people really maybe are not aware of their power, I think it's important that that's why I'm kind of bringing this story out again. And I always thought this was a good metaphor. It's like, we, we all know the story of the black guy walking or driving and getting pulled over. Now you have a black guy walking in cyberspace getting pulled over. Like what gives, right? It was never, ever my attention. I, I, race never entered my mind as an issue. The, the issue here um, was online bullying. Uh, the issue here was illegal firearms. And the issue here was our children being killed on our streets. And uh, maybe some more direct contact with Paul and Mark at the time would have been a good thing. And um, by him kind of uh, making the, the comparison to me pulling over him on the internet uh, because of his racial background isn't based in, in fact, and that's a deception in itself. It's that's not what what I or any of my colleagues were doing and uh, are not doing. So it, it it definitely evokes some emotion in me that that, that he says that. Um, what is that emotion that it's evoking in you to hear to hear the someone say that they that they perceived your work a certain way that you that you might not believe is the way it should be perceived? I would say it's probably the same emotion that Paul feels. Um, that it's it's insulting, um, and and it if I feel like it it's limiting, um, you know, if somebody's portraying you as a racist, that that um, that limits career opportunities. It limits your reputation. It affects everything. It, it's definitely not true. I'm I'm an ally to anything to do with. Uh, systemic racism and reform always have been, uh, always will be. Paul didn't want to portray Scott as a racist, but I explained to Scott how Paul says skin color and status do play big roles in who gets to speak with authority and be trusted and who doesn't. I have empathy for for that. I, he has some validity in that. And... Uh, you know, like like when a police officer speaks, there's a there's a degree of authority there. When a politician speaks, there's a degree of authority. Everybody, when they look at this, has a different interpretation. And coming from some from a lens, like our perceptions and our opinion are based on our experiences and I don't I don't think that either experience can be dismissed I think I think we have to listen to each other's experience and have have a dialogue about it and put our heads together to come up with something better like like for me I see I see this interview and what what you're doing here is maybe bringing 
these two worlds together again in a, in a more positive light. I don't think that Paul or Mark's opinions can be dismissed, and I don't think that my opinions can be dismissed. I think the more dialogue and the more understanding of each other's perspectives, the better. Scott ended this interview by asking Paul to reach out and told me to pass along his phone number. He was like, he'd be happy to... Yeah, this is 15 years later. Uh, kind of late, kind of late. <laughs> I think uh, there is uh, nothing to fix at this point. When you first start a thing, you say, you know, I'm, I'm nervous to talk to you to drag all this stuff up. Yeah. And uh, how are you feeling now? I'm still nervous. I'm always nervous. I don't think that the trauma will ever kind of uh, lift away. I'm always kind of like, you know, just watching myself. So I feel kind of sad personally that it took me this long to speak out and all that kind of stuff. Because I felt like it would be a challenge, an uphill battle that we wouldn't be believed And it took us 15 years and winning so many awards and earning credibility, hard, hard fought credibility that I have to, you know, be, you know, recipient of a governor's general's award. My best friend Mark is a recipient of a governor's general's award. Like that is the only time where I felt comfortable and safe enough to even speak out. And I still fear potential ramifications. Um, So that's why I really feel for the kids, the next generation coming up in Jane and Finch. It's like, you're a kid, you don't have a network, you don't have a credibility or opportunities or professional contacts. How the hell are you going to speak up other than just tweeting something? How can you say with confidence and, and credibility and have an audience to actually fight, fight back in an injustice? So, uh, yeah. And hopefully through this story, I would like the audience to, to understand that these are some of the traumas that people of color f- face. And when they have, they're complaining and they're complaining loudly, whether it's on the streets or in social media, you can understand where it's coming from. Be aware of your power. Be aware of your position. And maybe you don't think you don't feel skin color is is a part of it, but you don't know the advantages you have, the the credibility you have just being a white person. That doc was produced by Julia Poggle. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. Thanks to contributor Paul Nguyen. In this doc, you heard music by Corey Fila, Blackest Ninja, and Michael Lamourie, a.k.a. No Limit Mike. And for the tracks you heard at the start of this episode, we want to thank Chucky Akins, K-Tiz featuring Tactic, Breezy and Skilla, The Smugglers, and Jigs Krills. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, Sherry O'KK, Tanera McLean, Mark Apollonio, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer with web writer Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.